Actually, I do want to actually pray before we start tonight. So let me do that. Father, this is my prayer uh, that the things that we learn tonight would not just be information, uh, but that you would draw us uh, into awe and into worship as we think about really big things, things that are bigger than we can fully understand. I pray that you would uh, grow both in myself and my friends here a desire to know more, even if we cannot know it fully. Uh, and that you would point us to Jesus with a deeper love and deeper worship tonight. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. amen. All right. Uh, so I, my family, when I was a, it was actually a freshman in college, so I officially moved out my first semester, um, we went through like a series of dogs when I was a kid, dogs and cats and all those things, and they never lasted very long in our house my mom uh, used to joke that we should just name our pets uh, the months of the year because that's about how long we had them all the times. All, I, I'm sorry, I'm just telling you, this is just how things happen, okay? Um, they would run away, they would die of random lawn diseases. Uh, they would, were pretty sure one of our cats got eaten by a hawk. Uh, so, but the longest lasting dog, man, this, I'm sorry, this was a dark start. I didn't mean to start this way, okay? Let's bring it back. Okay, let's, uh, uh, the longest lasting animal in our house uh, was a dog that they got after I was gone. I'm just making like this connection. Maybe I was the problem somehow. <laughs> after I was gone, it was a dog named Sweet Pea. And Sweet Pea was half Jack Russell, uh, half Rat Terrier. All right, I just actually found out today there's a name for that. It was called a Jack Rat, was the, is the name of that dog, right? That's actually the name, okay? Uh, I never knew that. I just knew half Jack Russell, half Rat Terrier. Sweet Pea was a good dog, a little hyper at first, but she kind of calmed down as, as she got a little bit older. She was uh, territorial and playful, and all those things are really good. Uh, but if I were to bring you over to our house, if we were to time travel back to 2001, and I was to bring you over to our house, um, and uh, introduce you, and you're like, ah, oh, this is a cool dog, what kind of dog is this? And, and I said, well, it's uh, Jack Russell, and you're like, oh, sweet, Jack Russell, and I'm like, and Rat Terrier. And you're like, oh, okay, so like 50-50, nope, 100% Jack Russell. Okay, so, but what you said Rat, so were you not telling the truth about the Rat Terrier, it's just a Jack Russell? No, no, it's Rat Terrier. Okay, so 50-50, no, 100% Rat Terrier also. Um, and, and, and we would could go back and forth on this, and you go, wait a second, that's not, Drew, that doesn't make sense. I don't know if you know this, Drew, but things can't be 100% something and 100% something else at the same time. Uh, mathematically, that doesn't work. Those two things can't, like, it can't work out that way. But that is uh, the kind of math that we're going to be doing tonight. Uh, math that is hard to kind of get your mind around a little bit. Uh, the, the kind of stuff that we're talking through is different. Uh, Christology is our subject. Christology is the study of the person, nature, and role of Jesus Christ. Study of the person, nature, and role of Jesus Christ. Uh, every one of the things that we're studying uh, in our Crash Course Theology series this summer is important. Uh, all of it is really important to be able to get your mind around. But this one really is, we would say, central. There's a, there's a phrase that goes like this, Christianity is Christ. That is what Christianity, if you want to boil it down to what Christianity is about, it centers around the person, the nature, the role of Jesus Christ. 
And so this becomes really big. And there is no shortage of opinion on who or what Jesus was. Uh, many hold that there is something extraordinary, extraordinary about him. Even uh, most other world religions actually have some category for the man Jesus Christ. Uh, uh, religions like Islam will, will call him a prophet, a really, really great prophet. Um, and, and religions like the Baha'i faith will call him a manifestation of God. Say so there's only five or six manifestations of what God actually was like in history, and Jesus Christ was one of them. Others will call him a holy man. Uh, the Dalai Lama, actually that may be what the Dalai Lama for the Tibetan Buddhist calls him a holy man. Others in the Hindu faith, some will actually even refer to Jesus as a god. Um, of course, they have many gods that they refer to, and they're happy, some of them, to put Jesus in that, or some will call him an enlightened one. Those who don't want to quite put him on this level will still put him up here as like a wise teacher, or a political revolutionary, or a Jewish apocalyptic teacher. Uh, from the first century, teaching things that people had not seen or heard before. Uh, and then, of course, there are some, particularly those in Judaism, who would refer to Jesus as a heretic, uh, as someone who led the people astray, as a false prophet. But Christianity has a very unique take on Jesus, and that is that he is fully God and fully man. And by that we would say, by fully, we don't mean... He's really very much God, and he's really very, we would say, he is 100% God, and he is 100% man, uh, that he is absolutely, completely both of those things. Uh, and so, uh, we will, that's kind of what we're going to be breaking down. We call this actually, and this is your next little turn, the hypostatic union. Hypostatic union uh, really just means basically the personal union. Uh, hypostatic is from the Greek word hypostasis, which came to mean uh, person, personal. So the personal union of Christ's two natures. The personal union of Christ. So the two natures of Christ combined dwelling in one person. Um, what's kind of interesting is that there are actually few Christian doctrines that are more universally agreed upon than this one. Uh, you think about all the different things that Christians have disagreed upon over the years, and, and we, have, we have split, uh, starting in 1054, the church split off into the Eastern Orthodox faith, and then around the 1500s, you had the Catholic faith that split off into the Protestant uh, version, so there are three major branches of Christianity, um, and then there are a ton of different denominations that make their way through Protestant Christianity, and virtually all of them agree on the person, nature, and work of Christ. They, almost all of them agree on the hypostatic union. Even Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholic, Protestant, these three branches that have had, uh, the Eastern Orthodox Church has been separated from us for a thousand years. We still agree, line up completely on the hypostatic union and on the person and work of Jesus. The reason that even though the church disagrees about things like baptism and the Lord's Supper and the end times and exactly what uh, human beings are made up of and exactly how the inspiration of Scripture was, but we all agree on who Jesus was and what his nature was. The reason why is for two reasons, actually. One is it's really important. Christianity is Christ. It's important that we get this right. Two is that in the early years of the church, in the first few hundred years, they spent a lot of time hammering this out. They spent a lot of time 
talking about this because it was so important and yet so mysterious, so hard to get your minds around, that the church had to come together and talk through and correct stuff every time people started veering off. So they had to really kind of solidify their, th- uh, their thoughts on that as a bunch of different heresies began to spring up around Jesus and his nature and his relationship with the Father. Now to tackle this, we've actually got to take a a few steps back. Uh, We talked about who is or what is God like several weeks ago. And we've got to talk a little bit about that uh, before we can jump in. So we're going to take about 10 minutes uh, to talk about the Trinity for just a minute and and what we mean by the Trinity. Uh, Here is a quick definition on that. Do I have this here? Um, Somewhere in here. Actually, never mind. Sorry, I'm I'm saving that till later. Uh, So... The word Trinity never comes up in Scripture. We talked about this uh, before a while back. To do systematic theology, what we are basically doing, as opposed to biblical theology, which is where biblical theology is I take uh, one book or one chapter, I read my way through it, and I see what is this book teaching me. It's what we normally do at the table on Thursday nights. Systematic theology is if I took a bunch of buckets up here, okay, And I had, we kind of use this illustration, if I had in this bucket over here I had God, and if in this bucket over here I had like uh, man, what we talked about last week, or humanity, what we talked about last week, and what you do is you basically go through the Bible and you look at all the verses that talk about humanity, and you kind of like, you cut those out of the Bible and you put all those verses in that bucket, and then when you piece those, you read through all of those, you kind of study them, and then you create like basically a doctrine about humanity, anthropology, based on that. And that's what we're doing with God, is we look at all the different verses about God, and we put them in this bucket, and then we've got to take these verses, and we've got to, we've got to look at and discover how they all come together. What is the, the whole picture that they are painting of what God is like? And so when we read through Scripture, we see this, Uh, First of all, the Bible clearly teaches that there is only one God. The Bible clearly teaches this. So go to Isaiah 44 real quick. Isaiah 44, verses 5 through 6. Um. I may have just told you the wrong verse. Actually, sorry. Start in verse 6, not in 5. In 6. It says, This is what the Lord, the King of Israel, and its Redeemer, the Lord of Armies, says, I am the first and I am the last. There is no God but me. Who, like me, can announce the future? Let him say so and make a case before me, since I have established an ancient people. Let these gods declare the coming things and what will take place. So he says this, there is no other God but me. I am the first, I am the last. And then he begins to say, so if these other gods are actually a God, let them begin to proclaim the things of the future like I am doing. No one can which he says is, is proof to you that I am the only God. We see this come up in Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
There is only one. We see this come up in the New Testament as well. We read this passage, if you were at the table with us, as we walked through 1 Corinthians this last year. 1 Corinthians 8.4 We know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no God but one. And this is why the Hebrew people in the middle of a world that was thoroughly polytheistic, believing that they were gods all over the place, gods of different nations, gods of different regions, of different people groups, the Hebrew people always proclaimed there was only one God. And it's why the Christians into the New Testament proclaim the same thing. There is only one God because the Bible says this over and over again. So the Bible, we put this in here, the Bible clearly says there is one God. But here we also see... Uh, the Bible also clearly teaches that three different persons are God. In Matthew, th- this one's the, the least argued, right? And that is that the Father is God. In Matthew 6.26, Jesus says that the Heavenly Father provides, and then in the very next uh, couple verses later, verse 30, he says, God provides. So he uses Heavenly Father and God interchangeably. Father will provide for you. That is, God will provide for you. Um, in many of the epistles will actually start with Paul or Peter saying, Grace to you from God our Father. And, and so again, this one's very little uh, debates to it over and over again. The Father is referred to as God. But we also see that Jesus is referred to as God. In Hebrews 1.8, he's quoting from Psalm, I think it's Psalm 8, maybe Psalm 2. And the writer of Hebrews says, But of the Son, or about the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. So the writer of Hebrews says, When the psalmist is talking about God, he says that to the Son. Um, There are a number of places uh, where Jesus takes on the roles of God or the the privileges and prerogatives of God. He forgives sin in Mark chapter 2. And as soon as he does that, all the religious leaders go, he can't do that. Only God can forgive sin. And Jesus doesn't go, oh, you're right. I shouldn't have done that. My bad. Right? Jesus goes, yeah, that's right. And let me prove to you that I have the authority to do that. And heals a man right there. Uh, Jesus talks about how he will judge. He calls in Matthew 13, 41, he calls all of God's angels his angels. Uh, and so he, he does these things. He uses in John 8, 58, if you're at Sunnybrook, we came across this passage, he uses the name of God for himself, I am. And it's really clear to everyone else around what he's doing because as soon as he does that, they all pick up stones so that they can stone him for blasphemy. They all know that he just called himself God when he said those things. And so Jesus refers to himself as that. But we also see that the Holy Spirit, though this is less explicit, the Holy Spirit is also referred to as God. There are a couple places where the writers will use Holy Spirit and God interchangeably. Like in Acts 5, when Ananias and Sapphira bring this money to the church and they lie about how much they had actually used. They actually used part of it on themselves and then gave the rest to the poor. And Peter says, you lied to the Holy Spirit. And then like a verse or two later, he says, it's not man you lied to, it was God you lied to. When you lied to the Holy Spirit. Um, He uses those two things interchangeably. Um, uh, In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says that we are God's temple. And then just a few chapters later, he says we are the Holy Spirit's temple. So which one is it? Is it God's temple or the Holy Spirit? Paul says, yes, 
Yeah, it's the same thing to say those things. Uh, but probably bigger is the multiple times where something is said to be dead. They call it the triune formula or the Trinitarian formula where these three characters are placed side by side. Jesus says to his followers in Matthew 28 that he sends them out to make disciples and he says, and you will baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And we'll see that kind of three-person formula come up several times in the New Testament. And then there are these weird spots. So we see that there is one God, and we see that three different people are referred to as God. And we also see these weird spots where God is referred to singular and plural in like the same breath. Uh, Like in the Matthew 28 text, I don't know if you caught it, Jesus never says, go out and make disciples and baptize them in the names of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. No, it's baptize them in the name, singular, of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so this becomes the thing. Paul, uh, the Hebrew, and actually Greek, they have singular forms of verbs and plural forms of verbs. And so in Genesis 1.26, where God says, let's make man in our own image, he says this, Then God said... So God singular, and it's said is a singular verb in the Hebrew. God singular, said singular, let us make, and that's a plural verb, let us, plural, make mankind in our own image. So in the same breath, it is God singular and then God plural that comes together there. Uh, we see this uh, really big statement in John 1.1. And this is one of the texts that's on there, actually, the chapter, John chapter 1. But John 1, 1 says this, The Word was with God, referring to Jesus is the Word, the Logos. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Okay? In the beginning, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So we are left, as we put all of these scriptures in this bucket, we're left to go, okay, something different than what we might be used to, or what we might be able to explain, is going on here we're left with this term, the Trinity. And here's kind of our definition of the Trinity. It is the unity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as three persons in one Godhead. The unity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as three persons in one Godhead. Three persons, one essence. Okay? Uh, On the back of your sheet, actually, I don't have it because we're all out of handouts. On the back of your sheet, you have what's what's called like the shield of the Trinity. That's fine, you can have it there. You have what's called the shield of the Trinity or the Trinitarian shield. And you can look at it. This is kind of a, I don't know, I should know who who came up with this, but this is a a big deal. I think it was first put in Latin, so it's old. Uh, But uh, this is kind of like the closest we can get to trying to explain a little bit of what we mean by the Trinity and how it all works. All three of these are God. All three of these are not the same as each other. Uh, I've heard it said that the Trinity can be summed up in seven statements. Okay? There is one God. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Spirit is God. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. That's the Trinity right there. Uh, that you have three persons who are distinct from one another, and yet they are all God, and they are all made up of the same essence. So they are not three different parts of a God. They are 
all the same essence, the same God. In other words, if God is cookie dough, okay, weird analogy, but go with me for just a second. And by the way, anytime you use analogies to explain God, you are wrong. Uh, anytime, or anytime you use analogies to explain the Trinity, it gets you in trouble. So don't fully chase this out, all right? Uh, but uh, if, if God is cookie dough, it's not uh, the Father is flour and Jesus is the eggs and the Holy Spirit's the chocolate chips, right? Um, it is the Father is the cookie dough and Jesus is also cookie dough and the Spirit is cookie dough. They're all made up of the same stuff, the same substance, the same nature, in all three of those together. Now, this is where a person will want to begin to object. They'll go to John 1, John 1, 1, the Word was with God and the Word was God from the very beginning. Uh, and go, that does not make sense, okay? You can't say, uh, I was with Kylie and I was Kylie at the same time, right? <laughs> those two things can't happen. That's not how reality works. To which... John the Apostle and the rest of the scriptures and God himself is going to say to you, I'm going to invite you into another view of reality. I'm inviting you in to a different kind, not a different reality. Reality is just reality. To a different view of it. To be able to see it more clearly. Um, there's this illustration, I'm pretty sure it's C.S. Lewis. Uh, uh, in Mere Christianity, I think is what I, I, I've been told or what I remember. But he talks about these group of people, he says, imagine a world in which everything is two-dimensional. And, and all these people have is two dimensions. He calls them the flatlanders, okay? Everything is flat. Everything is two-dimensional. There's no depth. There's nothing like that. All they have is this kind of stick figure version. Now, imagine for a second that we from the three-dimensional world were going to interact with flatland. And if I were to throw this ball into flatland, what would that look like to them? That's right. There you go. Okay. It would look like that. It would just look like a circle. Or if I were to reach my hand into flatland, okay, to try and engage with them, what would they see? Yeah, they would see just five little circles. Okay, until my hand and arm got through there, and then it would just look like this arm, right? And, and there would be, or there'd just be like this big circle going through there, and, and this is like all they would be able to process of that. And in their, like, in their world, I just don't know if there's something weird about that, so I'm going to erase that just in case. Um, in, in their world, like, they don't, they can't even fathom three dimensions. They can't even fathom something being like round like this. All they can fathom is a circle. That doesn't mean this doesn't exist. Something bigger than them, something outside of their ability to, to get their minds around has just engaged in their world. And that is what is happening when God, if you go back to Rachel's illustration that she had a few weeks ago, above the ark and below the ark, God is the one thing that sits above the ark, the one thing outside of time and space and everything else. And when God interacts below the ark, we can see that. But the truth is, we're not going to be able to grasp fully all that He is by seeing Him engage in our world. Just like the Flatlanders would not be able to fully understand a three-dimensional person reaching into their world. There's, they can understand enough 
They can, we believe that the Bible teaches us enough about God, but we're not going to be able to fully grasp all that He is. There is a mystery um, in what we are encountering when we talk about the Trinity and when we talk about the hypostatic union to our flatlander brains is, is kind of a, it is a mystery. And there are basically two responses you can have when you come to a mystery like the Trinity or the hypostatic union. The first one is to give up or to just not try and go, dude, we'll never understand it, so what's the point? Right? Like, why even spend our night talking about this stuff? Because it's, it's three-dimensional, and we're two-dimensional, and we can't get our minds around this fully. So why even try to, to kind of work through those things? The, the second way to approach this is to do everything you can to remove the mystery, which is also a bad response to try to make it all make sense, to get rid of any of the tension that exists in this doctrine or in this idea here. The first one, if you do that, if you just go, ah, that's, that's not me. I'm not much of a thinker. I'm not a deep thinker. What's even the point if we can't get our minds around it? Fair enough. Okay? We may not fully understand this, but what I want you to know is that you are missing out on a chance for awe. You're missing out on a chance for worship. It's like someone going, man, the Grand Canyon is too far away to drive to. And the truth is, I'll never, like from one place, I'll never be able to see the whole thing. I can't even take it all in. And so what's the point? And I would go, yeah, you're right. That is going to take some effort to get there, to drive there. And you're right. You're not going to be able to see it all from any one place. But if you don't go and just take it in, if you don't make the drive and, and go take in what you can, you are missing out on an incredible opportunity to be kind of overwhelmed by something bigger than yourself. And when we, when we study God and when we're willing to go after this and run hard and then come to the limits of ourselves, and we hit a point, there's a point, I think, where we, all we're left with is worship. And we get to sit in awe of that, and, and we miss out on something if we don't try. But the second thing that happens is, to, like I said, what, what people have tried to do throughout history is they go, there's this mystery here, there's this paradox, God is three, He's one, Jesus is fully God, fully man, and they've tried to solve it and to, un, to kind of tidy up the mystery. And when they do that, when they try to remove the tension, that is when the church has moved into heresy. That's when the church has moved into false belief. Even when, I said, when we try to do analogies, there's a lot of analogies for the Trinity. The Trinity is like water, which can take on three forms. It can be liquid, it can be ice, it can be vapor. Okay? Uh, the Trinity is like an apple that has the three parts, the, the peel and then the actual like fruit and then the seed. Or the Trinity is like a three-leaf clover that each leaf makes up the thing, but they're all kind of a part that does something. Um, you need to go home, okay? Google this, all right? Lutheran satire, uh, St. Patrick's bad analogies, all right? There's this guy, he's created this whole... This whole page called Lutheran Satire, the tagline is teaching the faith by making fun of stuff. Okay, that's his whole thing. And he does these really like bad, cheap cartoons or whatever. But literally, it's really, a lot of it is really solid teaching. And it's uh, St. Patrick, when he, who brought the gospel to Ireland, spent a lot of time trying to come up with analogies to explain the Trinity. And this cartoon just kind of talks about how, how off those things are, how wrong those get. And it actually will give you a pretty good teaching on what the Trinity is. So go check that out at some point. Um, but the same is true with the hypostatic union. When we try to remove the tension and the mystery of it, we, we miss out on things. So let me, let me show you what this looks like 
kind of in history, in a very real point in history, when someone tried to relieve the tension when it comes to the Trinity and the nature of Christ and tried to kind of remove some of that and clean it up, um, took place in the early 4th century, so the early 300s. There was this Alexandrian uh, bishop by the name of Arius, and he was wrestling with these things, specifically with the Trinity. And he was really concerned with the threeness aspect of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He was concerned that that was leading to a polytheism, because the Bible clearly teaches monotheism, one God. And yet, there were people in the church, and definitely people outside the church, who viewed Christianity as polytheistic, that there are three gods, Father, Son, and Spirit. And he's like, that's not right. He didn't know what to do with this three in one, so he proposed a new kind of way of thinking about that. And he began to teach that the Son, or uh, who we call, who we know as Jesus of Nazareth, but was once the Logos, the Word, that the Son or the Word, though very unique and special, was not the same as God. He was not made of the same nature or the same essence of God. In fact, he was created by God, just like the rest of us. Only he was created long ago before history began, and he was special and unique. But there was a time when the sun did not exist. And this is called Arianism, which we're going we're gonna to walk through these different things here in just a little bit. But it was known as Arianism. And it set off this decades-long controversy within the church. Another bishop from Alexandria, a guy by the name of Athanasius, rose up and Arius and Athanasius kind of went at it for a while. Athanasius holding to the Trinitarian view. No, Jesus has always existed. The Logos, the Word, has always existed from the very beginning along with the Father. And He is of the same essence. And Arian is saying, no, no, He was created later. And He's special and He's important and He's unique. But... The Father is the one true God. Jesus is a creature after him. And so these began to fight Constantine, who's a Christian emperor at this time. He's kind of the first big Christian emperor. And he's moving the empire towards Christianity. But he's waffling back and forth. And he doesn't know what to believe. Sometimes he's over here. Sometimes he's over here. And these guys are fighting about it. And so finally, he calls this council together, the first of the big church councils. It's called the Council of Nicaea. And says, you've you got to sort this out. And he calls a bunch of the church leaders and the bishops together and they meet together to study the scriptures and for Arius, Arius to kind of propose his side, Athanasius threw another guy. Athanasius wasn't like real high up on the, uh, he didn't have a lot of clout yet, but he was doing all the legwork and, and all that stuff, but kind of getting stuff out there. Um, these two sides proposed together and they came to talk about these things. Um, uh, so, they, through this thing, they end up formulating the Nicene Creed. I'm just going to read to you a brief excerpt of it. You can, you can Google this. But every church branch, Orthodox, Catholic, Protestant, and any like Bible-believing church holds to the truths of the Nicene Creed. It says this, we believe, it talks about the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We're just talking about the Son here tonight. So it says this, we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through Him all things were made, and for us and for our salvation He came down from heaven and He became incarnate 
by the Holy Spirit and was made human. So they basically, they end up after this siding with Athanasius and saying, no, no, he is truly God from God. He was not created. He has always been there. Um, and they declare Arianism to be heresy. Side note, uh, fun little uh, story. And this is actually probably legend. The more we look at it, we don't know. There is a story about one of the bishops getting so angry and so mad there um, that they, they got, like, it came down to, like, fisticuffs. And one of the bishops actually slapped Arius uh, across the thing because he was so mad at the things that Arius was saying. That bishop uh, was St. Nicholas of Lyon, I think. I can't remember the Lyman. That's it. St. Nicholas of Lyman. That is the St. Nick. That is Santa Claus, all right? So, um, <laughs> the moral of the story is, if you don't want to be on Santa's naughtiness list, do not diminish the divinity of Christ. <laughs> Otherwise, Santa might show up and slap you in the face. Um, so, this is, this is kind of a big deal. Now, there are people who will say, see... No one even believed in the divinity of Christ until the Council of Nicaea. Nobody believed in the Trinity until the 325, okay? 300 years after all this, that's when the church made all this up. No, no, no. The church did not make something up. This was something that the church was always believing and teaching, but because this heresy was springing up, they had to sit down and articulate it. Um, I love what my, what my friend Michael says. He says, the Trinity and the hypostatic union, that's not one of those things where we go, well, the church kind of always said that, so we have to believe it, I guess. That's kind of what they said, so we have to believe that. And no, he says, no, the church said that because they had to say it. Because as they looked at the scriptures, they could come to no other conclusion than that God is three in one. And that the Son is e uh, co-eternal with the Father and co-equal. So, now I want to get into, um, I want to get into real quick, these are kind of the six major heresies that sprung up around Jesus, around his nature. And you don't have to, I don't, uh, you don't have to feel like you've got to know all these and write them all down and when they came and all that stuff. The reason I want to tell you this is because actually I think one of the easier ways to understand what we mean when we say fully God, fully man, what we mean by the hypostatic union is to explain what we don't mean. Okay? This is what we don't mean when we say these things. Okay? So let me kind of give you just a few, of, uh, walk through some of these. Much of the formal articulation about his nature was written to protect against those who were trying to explain away the mystery. And in the process, they began to create some of these things. The first one, and this was like, there were some early forms of this, some preforms of this taking place even as the New Testament was finishing up. And that was Gnosticism. Gnosticism, um, which springs out of this idea in like the Greek way of thinking, Greek dualism, that there are kind of two different realms. There's the spiritual and the physical. And the spiritual is good and pure and right. And the physical is like corrupted. It's kind of removed. And the further it gets away from the spiritual, the dirtier and worse it gets. And so the idea was simply this, that if Jesus really is God, God could never come in the physical form because the physical is evil. It's corrupt. And so when people saw Jesus, they thought they were seeing Jesus in a body. Really what they were seeing was like this appearance of a human body, almost kind of like we would, we would say like a hologram, okay? Like it looked like he had a body, but he didn't, we know that God would never get so like icky as to have a human body on him, would never get so icky as to clothe himself in physical matter. 
And so the belief was that Jesus uh, just kind of appeared to be God. Uh, as I said, some of this thinking was already creeping in as the New Testament was being written. And that's why John, when he wrote his epistles, he starts, if you go to 1 John, he starts off and he says, I'm going to tell you about what we have seen from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have touched from the beginning. That is Jesus. He says, from the very beginning, well, uh, the person who came to us, Jesus, I was there at the beginning. I felt him. I heard him. I saw him. And he will say this in 1 John 4, verses 2 and 3. This is how you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. We talk about like Antichrist as this end time figure who's going to come and he's going to deceive the world and he's going to pretend to be like Jesus or a ruler. That's not actually what the Bible describes as the Antichrist. The Bible says Antichrist, there's multiple Antichrists. It's anyone who says Jesus did not come with a physical body. That's what, that's what 1 John says. And so what I want to do actually real quick, I'm going to, I'm going to use these shapes to try and explain what we mean uh, by Jesus. So if, if you take, uh, if the nature of God is uh, explained by like a triangle, we'll just say triangle equals the nature of God. We're going to use that for triune, right? And if humanity is like a square, okay, then this is what Gnosticism was. Gnosticism was saying God came and what you had was kind of this like appearance of a human there, but it wasn't really. What you were really just looking at was God with kind of like a, like I said, like a, a spiritual apparition or something around him that made him look human. Uh, the next one that came on was adoptionism. Um, and adoptionism basically was taught by the, well, I'm not even going to, worry about the name. It was taught in the 200s, um, and it swung the pattern the other way. This one said, actually, he was really just God and kind of looked human. Adoptionism swung it the other way and said, no, actually, he was pretty much just human and kind of looked like God. Uh, adoptionism is this idea that he was only a human, but he was very special and unique, but he was adopted by God as this special prophet at his baptism. When Jesus of Nazareth, this regular guy, goes and gets baptized, at that moment, God kind of says, you're my special person, you will be the human face of God. That was a phrase that they would use. The human face of God. And so, it would look something like... Uh, this, like a really shiny human, a really shiny square. So like you get to see God pretty clearly in Jesus, but he's not God. He's just a human being. This is spoken of clearly, is spoken against clearly in John 1, when it says that Jesus was with God and was God from the very beginning. It's spoken against in Colossians 1 that says he is the very image of God and through him all things were created. It's spoken of uh, against in Hebrews 1. So we know that this is not true. This would be, though, the primary non-Christian view of what Jesus was. A really, really great man. A really, really good teacher who maybe had some sort of special connection to God. And actually, there are a lot of what we call mainline churches or more liberal-leaning churches that would even teach this today. That Jesus was not the Son of God but that he was a really great person who had some really great stuff for us to learn. Okay, uh, the next one is Arianism, which I already told you a little bit about, uh, but I would say that it is kind of like this. You have 
Jesus as a human, and then there's actually this completely different creature, not God, but not really human either, the first of God's creator creations. And so it's just like a different shape altogether, circle. Actually, Jehovah's Witnesses today, this is what they believe about Jesus. Uh, Mormons, actually, this is primarily what they believe about Jesus. Jehovah's Witnesses would tell you Michael the archangel in the Old Testament, he eventually became the Jesus of the New Testament. He showed up in kind of human form. And so they would say that that's kind of what Jesus is. Next is Apollinarianism from a bishop by the name of Apollinarius in Laodicea, also in the 4th century. His idea was that Jesus had a human body, but not a human spirit or a human mind. Okay? Uh, that you basically take the shell of a body and then you put God inside of that, and that's what Jesus was. Uh, the phrase that gets used to describe this is God in a bod. All right? God in a body is what it is. Okay, now, here's where some of you in your minds right now might be going, wait a second, I thought that's what Jesus was. Uh, it would look like this. Okay, God taking, uh, taking a human body for himself and dwelling in that body and walking around, but he doesn't have a human mind, doesn't have like a human spirit. It's the will of God, it's the mind of God dwelling inside of a human being. We'll come back to that in just a second. Uh, the second uh, this other one is Nestorianism. And Nestorius taught that Jesus was actually not uh, one person with two natures, but it was actually two people working in concert together. You had the divine Son of God who entered into this kind of agreement or relationship with the man, Jesus of Nazareth, and they kind of partnered together. And so they're actually uh, two different people at work. And the divine part was doing all the miracles, but the divine part did not feel any of the weaknesses or frailties of humanity. The divine part did not suffer. The divine part did not get hungry. The divine part did not experience any of these things. So you had two different people coming together there. Um, uh, John 1.14 actually, though, tells us this, that the Word, the Logos, became flesh. Okay? So the Logos, the Word, did not partner with a human being. The Logos became a human being. And so that's why this does not work. Okay? Uh, a guy named uh, Eutychius saw this and said, this is crazy. It's not two different people. It's one people. And he ended up swinging the pendulum too far the other way and going, it's just one person with one nature. Okay, and so what this becomes is kind of like, like a hybrid, okay? Only this isn't fully fit, it's like kind of half square, half triangle. Only according to Eutychius, actually, uh, he says the humanity of Jesus was like a drop in the ocean of his divinity. So he was far more divine, far more, but there was like this little bit, it might be more like if you draw like a big triangle, and then there's like this little tiny square sticking out of the side of it. Okay, that's like Eutychianism, all right? Um, again, when I first was like studying this, when I was, someone was showing me this, I was like, I'm pretty sure this is what the Bible is teaching. Like, I, I was like, I think, I think, are we sure this is heresy? Because I might be a heretic, like if this is what this is. Um, and so I really like struggle with this because this, along with this actually, to me, and I believe a lot of Christians actually probably without realizing it, actually probably follow all along these spectrums. There are a number of Christians who believe these different things. 
Um, but that's not what we believe the Bible is teaching. My notes are getting all out of order here. Um, finally, the churches come together in Calsa. In actually, by the way, let me step back and say, Hebrews two seventeen is what breaks these down. Okay, Hebrews two all the way. I think I have in your notes like two eight through eighteen or something like that is what does says that Jesus became like us in every way, and so he did not become a God man hybrid. He became like us in every way. He did not uh, just take on our bodies. He took on humanity fully, a human spirit, a human mind, all together as one thing. And so Hebrews 2 breaks those down. Uh, the church finally comes together in 451 and says, we've got to stop. All these things, all these heresies keep popping up. And so we've got to create uh, something that helps people know what Jesus really is. And they come up with what's called the Chalcedonian Definition. You have that on the back of your sheet of paper. I just want to read to you uh, one little section of it, the first bold part. This is what they said. Our Lord Jesus Christ was at once complete in Godhead, that is complete in Godness, Godness, and complete in manhood, complete in humanness. Truly God and truly man, consisting also of a reasonable soul and body, of one substance with the Father as regards to His Godhead, and at the same time of one substance with us as regards His manhood. Like us in all respects. He was like us in every way. That's what Hebrews 2 says. He was like us in every way except for this one thing. He was not sinful. And so we would say that actually probably the biblical picture would be this a fusing together of the fullness of God and the fullness of man into one person. They're not distinct, but they're also not mixing together. You'll, uh, later on in that Chalcedonian definition, it says these two parts don't come together and uh, mix up with each other into creating something else. They don't, uh, they don't diminish one another or anything like that. They are completely uh, distinct but completely joined together. Uh, Roger Olson says this, if the Trinity, to kind of explain this, if the Trinity is one what and three who's, okay, one what, one essence, and three who's, three persons, Jesus is actually kind of a flip of that himself, and that is that he is two what's and one who. Uh, two natures, two essences combined into one person, to one person who is Jesus Christ. Yeah. That is exactly right. Um, that is because I do not know what that is. A tentagram. Actually, that's awesome. Yes, that is not a tentagram. That is a fusing of these things together. Um, and this is important because uh, what I want to talk about this question, why does this matter? Why does it matter that Jesus is a square triangle and not a tentagram and not a <laughs> pentagram? Okay, I thought tent because of the tent thing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not a pentagram because we are not doing Satanism here or anything like that. Okay. <laughs> I'm using tentagram from here on out though. So, okay. Why does it matter that Jesus is this and not these kinds of things? Okay. Why, 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 why not? Like, what does it matter if he's this and not this? 
And these kinds of things. It, and, and this is really important. It matters because if Jesus is something different than this, all of Christianity begins to crumble. Specifically, our salvation. Our ability to be saved. Let me read to you a few more verses around Hebrews 2. Hebrews 2, verses 14 through 18. Okay, we still got time. Verses 14 through 18 says this. Now, since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these, so that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. For it is clear that he does not reach out to help angels, but to help Abraham's offspring, that is human beings. Therefore, he had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God to make atonement for the sins of the people. For since he himself has suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. What the writer of Hebrews is saying here is Jesus did not die for an angel's sin. He says he didn't reach out for angels. He did not die for angels' sins because... Only an angel could die for an angel's sins. Okay? It has to be an angel paying for an angel's sins. And he did not die for frogs. Only frogs can die for human sins. And he did not die for human divine hybrids. If Jesus is 50% God and 50% man, he can only pay for the sins of everyone who is also 50% God and 50% man. He has to become 100% human, even as he retains his 100% divinity, he has to become 100% human because only human beings can pay for human beings' sins. Has to be man to pay for man's sin. But also, we, we also believe this, there is no mere human being if all Jesus is is a really great guy who's adopted in to God and his people. If that's all he really becomes, or if there, if you have God and man working together in Nestorianism, and God does all the miracles through him, but then the human being goes and dies on the cross because this, uh, this part can't suffer. We don't believe there's any such thing, A, as a human being who was sinless and therefore able to pay for us, and B, there's no such thing as a human being who can take on the full wrath of God without being utterly destroyed. He must be divine to be able to take that kind of sacrifice for us. And so this has to be in order for salvation to work, in order for atonement to be what it is. And so Jesus became that. He did not become a hybrid to die for hybrids. He did not uh, become God and Abad to die for other divine beings taking on a human shell. He became fully human. God had to reach down into our world as human to do those things. Um, The only way this works, again, back to the ark, Okay? If God sits above the ark, he cannot use any mortal, any mere mortal under that ark to be able to redeem all of human history. Only way it works is for God to set himself down below the ark and to step into the story with us. He's the only one strong enough to do that. He's the only one pure enough to do that. He's the only one sinless enough to do that. And so he does that through his son, Jesus Christ. Um, 
And Hebrews will go on to talk about this idea that because Jesus has done this, not only can we trust that he was enough to pay for our sins, we can also trust that in our weakness, when we come to him and we pray to him, when we're struggling with sin, when we're struggling and suffering, when we're going through hard things, he doesn't go, man, I, I, wish, I, I wish I could understand that. Um, that sounds rough, right? No, Jesus, as our merciful, faithful high priest, goes, I know, I get it. I know exactly what it's like to go through weakness. I know exactly what it's like to suffer. I know what it, exactly what it's like to feel alone. I know exactly what it's like to feel tempted to do something that you're not supposed to do. I know that, and because I know that, I can empathize with you, and I am ready and willing to help you. I'm ready and willing to reach in and do whatever it takes to help you through these things. That is, the, the, the writer of Hebrews says, that's what makes him such a perfect high priest. He's one who is divine, so he's able to offer a sacrifice for all time for us. But he's also one who is human, so he's able to identify with us and to help us in these things. Uh, that's what makes this so good. Do I have time to talk about why the Trinity matters? Sure. For just a minute, we'll talk about it. Um, Aristotle wrestled with this question. Uh, Aristotle yeah, obviously was not a Christian, but he believed that there was a God. Um, he couldn't get around the idea that everything existed, and therefore there had to be someone or something that got this going, the unmoved mover, he would call it. There had to be someone behind all this. And he actually believed, through his study of things, he believed that God was good. But this presented a problem for Aristotle because Aristotle recognized that to be good, you have to be good to someone or something. You can't just be good by yourself. Goodness is something that is given or shown to other people. And so Aristotle began to go circles around himself because if there was a time when the only person that existed was God, then he could not have been good yet until creation was made. There had to be something for him to be good to. He could not be loving towards if there was nothing to be loving to. And so Aristotle wrestled with this and struggled with this. We see this passage in 1 John chapter 4 says this, God is what? Love. God is love. And what John is saying is at the core of his identity, at the core of who he is, is love. And yet in every other picture, in every other religion of the world, God cannot be love. At least he couldn't for a very long time until he made someone or something to start loving. But in the Christian perspective of God, we believe that God has eternally existed in three persons that have lived in absolute loving relationship from the very beginning. Uh, John 17, Jesus says this, You loved me, Father, before the beginning of the world. That from all time, before anything else existed, this existed. A triune God that lived in perfect love and absolute love. That's why we can't say God is wrath. Because there was a time when there was nothing for wrath to be poured out on. That's why we don't say just God is power even though he is powerful. God is love. At the core of who he is, is love. We also believe this because God is triune, that the Father and the Son and the Spirit have always been in relationship. The Father has always loved the Son like this. That means God as Father is not a hat that He just put on 2,000 years ago to kind of try and like, now I'm going to try what it's like to be a Father. No, no, no. Father is what He is to the core of His being. 
from the very depths of him. He interacts with you as a father. He's not trying on a role as he does those things. That is what he is, a father who has always loved a son and has now invited lots of sons and daughters into that relationship to be a part of that. And so the Trinity is not just this, it is a mystery, but it's not an embarrassing mystery that we go, ah, I know it sounds weird. We, don't, we can't really explain it either. Sorry, this is what it is. It actually makes sense of the rest of our faith. And it's something that Islam doesn't know what to do with because they want to say Allah is loving. But there was a time in their view that there was nothing in existence to love, which means Allah is dependent on his creation to be a loving God. He has to have something around. Our God is dependent on nothing. Our God is simply love because that is what it is. That is what he is to the core of his being, is a loving God, a loving relationship between uh, three persons in the Trinity. Do you want to know why, whether you're a Christian or not, life always works better and more smoothly and you feel more alive when you're in good and loving and self-giving relationships? And why those people who are constantly tearing their relationships apart and always living at kind of a wreck with those who are close to them, why life always feels terrible and like it's falling apart? It's because at the core, at the very center of the universe that everything was built around was perfect, harmonious, loving relationship. Father, Son, and Spirit all together. Flowing out. God is, John says, God is love. And we've been invited into that. Uh, three discussion questions for you to kind of think through tonight. Um, when we tend to think about things in tension or paradox, we want to ease the tension by kind of leaning ourselves one way or the other. The threeness of God or the oneness of God. Um, with Jesus to lean towards his divinity or his humanity. I want you to kind of spend some time talking about which one, if you're honest, when you kind of think through, which one do you find yourself leaning more towards when you think about God or when you think more about Jesus? Or maybe you might look at these up here and go, if I'm honest, my view of Jesus has been this all my life, and I didn't realize that was wrong. And then talk a little bit about what's missing. What do we miss when we don't see Jesus for all that he fully is? So take a few minutes and talk about those together. <laughs>